Okay, as these guys are heading out, I got a, just a little primer exercise for you. If you have um, your bulletin where there's sermon notes or something like that, um, or just keep it in your brain, what comes to mind when you hear the word sacrifice? Like, first thing that comes to mind. Go ahead and write that down or think about it just for a second. Sacrifice. And now if you want to just partner up or grab a threesome and just share what, what it was that you thought of when you heard the word sacrifice. The temple of, me too. <laughs> Beating hearts in my hand. <laughs> All right, so we got a little temple of doom reference. Um, anyone else care to just shout out what was something that you heard? Yeah. Isaac, okay, ooh, more biblical than Temple of Doom. Giving something up, yeah. One at a time. <laughs> Being a parent, faux show. There's something in this region. Okay, all right. So giving something up, nasty, bloody, pagan sacrifice from Temple of Doom, Isaac, Abraham. Yeah, I mean... Sacrifice is, is giving something up. Sometimes we think of it as bloody and gross or undesirable or drudgery. It's certainly sacrifice for a, a reason. A and I wonder, I don't really wonder, I think in most American churches in the 21st century, I, I would venture to say that sacrifice is one of the last things on our minds when we come to Sunday worship. Maybe, maybe you're holier than, than me, but that's not one of the first things on my mind. Uh, we might think of the songs that we're going to sing. Oh, I hope they do that one I really like, or I hope they do th don't do that one uh, that I don't like. Or we might wonder, gosh, I wonder if the sermon's going to be any good today because I invited my friend. I hope it doesn't, I hope Chris doesn't say anything weird, which that's going to be almost every week, right? So, oh, I wonder if I remembered to DVR the Seahawks game. Right? Or, or we might come with real earnest desires, like, I, I'm coming tonight, I need to hear a word from the Lord, or I need encouragement, or I simply need to be with people who love me because I'm kind of down this week. And all of those reasons and things we might think of when we come to worship are very good, and I'm glad that you can think those when you come to church. But besides serving in ministry or bringing money for the offering, most of us probably don't consider, uh, at least the first thing we think about about going to church is it being much of a sacrifice. But when you think about it, we're a, a people who sacrifice all the time. Let's just take church and religion out of it. Uh, many of you, as I look out here, I know that you've trained for races before. I have seen uh, some marathoners, half marathoners out there, triathlete people. And when you do that, you sacrifice, right? You, you, you don't eat certain things and you, uh, you have to train on a certain regimen and, and it's hard work. If you've ever had an education or you're getting an education, you've sacrificed time and mental torment and sometimes financial indebtedness or at least cost of the money, right? Uh, when you work, unless you just have the cushiest job in the world, you often make sacrifices to, to make that happen. And if you've ever been in a relationship of any kind, there's sacrifice involved if you want to maintain that relationship, right? There has to be compromise and and sometimes you don't get your way all the time. We sacrifice for those things that we deem worthy of investment. Sacrifice for that which is worth it. 
And if something, if it's something uh, we're more than willing to give because of the outcome, we're willing to, to sacrifice for it. And over the past few weeks, we've been exploring together the last half of the book of Exodus, and particularly how these chapters inform us about what it means to worship the living God. And I, for one, am thankful that we're doing this, because I don't know about you, but when you read those chapters, like 24, 25 through 40, it's a lot of boring stuff on the surface. But what we're discovering together, I think, is that there's good news in these passages. For example, we discovered that worship matters. That uh, all people have this internal, innate desire to worship God, but if that desire is acted upon, but not in a, in a way that's informed biblically, then our worship will become perverted and corrupt. And, and we saw how the Israelites, even just a short time after God delivered them from Egypt and brought them through the Red Sea and did all the crazy plagues and all of this evidence of him being the dude who is the real God, Ten Commandments, all this stuff, then they quickly turned to idolatry. And we discovered how deeply God loves his people. When they were wandering in the desert with no land to call home, God came to be with them. And he gave them the tabernacle, a sacred space where they could come and know that they could connect with the living God. And last week, we focused on the gift of the visual arts how God employed the arts as aids in, the, in worship in the tabernacle. A and we saw how for many in our own congregation, the arts can not only aid in worship by, by making beautiful things that point to the truths of God or the beauty of God, but, but even in the process of making art that maybe no one else will ever see, that can be a worshipful experience for us, can't it? And this evening, we're going to continue on looking at these chapters in Exodus that may seem tedious. And we're going to explore sacrifice and its role both historically and presently in worship. Father, this is a, a foreign subject. Uh, the, the arts, we can kind of get our minds around. We can talk conceptually about a tent that you had Moses build and, and how you meet with your people and, we, and we're grateful for that. But this idea of sacrifice and blood and weird stuff. It is not only foreign, but Lord, we confess it's off-putting. And so I pray that you would help us to stick with you as we stick with the text and that you'll lead us, Lord, uh, to understand your heart better. Help us, help us to receive the word that you have for us now. Amen. There are lots of different kinds of sacrifices in tabernacle and later temple worship. And the nuances and the details of all of these things and how to do them and why you do them can get very tedious. Just read Leviticus on your own time. We're not going to do that right now. But I will say this, that all of these sacrifices fall into three main categories. Uh, all of the biblical sacrifices fall into three main categories. And so we're going to deal with those three main categories. And they are, if you're a note taker, Atonement, sacrifices of atonement, sacrifices of gift, and sacrifices of fellowship or peace offerings. Now, atonement is probably the most familiar of, of the, uh, the sacrifices, and it is of first order importance. The Old Testament scholar, Tremper Longman III, is helpful when he writes, Atonement is arguably the most fundamental function of sacrifice. Atonement is an English word contrived from the phrase at 
one meant. Put them together. Atonement, right? It denotes making a unity, restoring a relationship. That's what atonement is about, restoring a relationship. The very real idea behind this type of sacrifice is that human beings have rebelled against God and that we've broken, horribly broken this relationship between ourselves and God. And there are two separations that we've uh, made in particular between us and God. The first is an ethical separation. God is holy. He's without fault. He's, from a human perspective, a fallen human perspective, he's unapproachable. When he met Moses on the mountain, he gave Moses permission to come close to him, but Moses still couldn't see him face to face. And everybody else, not only could they not come up the mountain, they couldn't touch the mountain. Not even their animals could touch the mountain. And this communicates the sense of God's holiness. God is good through and through. He's compassionate and he's just, but he's also holy. And to approach him just in a flippant manner is dangerous. The ancient Jews wouldn't even say his name or write it in print. They referred to Yahweh as Adonai, which is translated the Lord. So this first separation is one of a holy God and sinful people. And it's not that God wants to be separate, but it's like in our fallen state, we simply can't handle the holiness. It's like God is radioactive or something, and I want to give you a hug, but you'll die if you get too close to me, right? We don't have our radioactive suits on. The second separation is relational. It's relational. It's not just that God is holy and unapproachable by fallen humans. It's also that God's heart was broken, his honor shamed by people. And, and sometimes the prophets would speak of rebellious humanity as like, uh, like an adulterous wife, and God is the husband. In other words, God has given us this great dignity and trust by making us his image bears. And when we sin, we fail to love and to trust God, and we hurt one another, and we destroy the creation we're made to cultivate. And we break that covenant relationship with God. And we really, what the prophets would say is we're committing relational adultery against him. So, I mean, just to like set the scene, the situation's pretty bleak. Like, we can't get near him, and we've really damage this relationship, and we keep doing it. Not only have we sinned, but we keep on sinning. And how are we then to relate to this God, let alone worship him in intimacy? What, what could we possibly do? Well, thankfully, we have a God who is gracious and compassionate, and this God provided ways for people to come near to him. Now, as we've mentioned in previous weeks, the very orientation of the tabernacle, it's not just that he had Moses command uh, Bezalel and Aholiab to, to create the tabernacle, but he told them how to situate it. And we saw that in, especially the Genesis narratives, every time somebody sinned big time, they were cast out of Eden to the east. And then when they sinned again, further east and further east and further east. And so this tabernacle is actually facing east so that the front door to this worship space where the presence of God dwell is aiming toward the east. As if to say, come, come west, come toward me, come back into fellowship with me. So, so there's, there's grace there, even in the, the orientation of the tabernacle itself. The fact remains that the relationship is truly broken. It can't just be fixed with the wave of a hand. Anyone who has suffered real betrayal knows that that's true. You might be able to even get to a place where you can forgive, but there's something internally broken. 
A drunk driver smashes into a parked car and totals it. Thankfully, no one is hurt. She goes to jail, pays a fine, goes to rehab, has been sober, is forgiven by the owner of the car. But the car is still totaled. Someone has to pay for it. Forgiveness does not take away the dents or straighten the frame or fix the paint job. There's real damage. And sin is like that. There's true loss. There's true damage done. God is ridiculously forgiving, but what's done is actually done. And that's where the sacrificial system comes in. He calls sinners back from the east toward his presence in the west. He's, he's gracious. But before we enter into his uh, presence in relationship, that relationship needs to be restored. And, and so it's by his grace that he offers us alternatives. The people of Israel were to bring animal sacrifices as, at, at significant personal and communal cost. And they would repent of their sin and symbolically place their hand on the animal and send it out of the camp as a scapegoat. And then they would take another animal and slaughter it, and spread the blood of that animal, the high priest would, on to the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And this did two things to heal the two aspects of the broken relationship. Atonement, at one meant, meant two things. First is, for all the theology geeks out there, or you just want to write something down, expiation. Expiation. This is one of the things atonement did in the Old Testament. Expiation. That's a fancy word for to cover over. In fact, it's the same word used when Noah covers tar over the ark to seal it up from the ocean. Okay? So it's a cover over. Expiation, the sacrifice, covers over our sin in the eyes of God. Wipes it away. Wipes it clean. The second thing that sacrifice does is accomplishes propitiation. That's the relational aspect. We've broken God's heart, we've aroused his jealous anger, and propitiation is the restoring of that relational brokenness. Atonement does both of these things. N.T. Wright helpfully sums up the two-step process when he writes, you propitiate a person who's angry or hurt, you expiate a sin or a stain on your character. Okay? One is relational, one is like ontological. The expiation wipes away the sin, propitiation fixes the relationship. Now, both of these things were accomplished for the community on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which, by the way, was yesterday in the Jewish calendar. Sit with this just for a minute, this whole idea of how broken human, humans are, of the lengths that God has gone to in this text, right? In this scene where people, he makes a way for people uh, to be made right with him, at least temporarily. When was the last time you considered the absolute holiness of God? The impossibility of on your own good work coming near him? When was the last time you felt the reality that your sin should separate you from God? Why didn't you bring an animal sacrifice with you today when we came for worship? Why isn't it bloodier and stinkier in here? Because that. Because the cross. Because of Jesus. The system of sacrifice in the tabernacle and later the temple was only temporary. 
It was inadequate to deal with the human problem of sin. It could only allow people to enter into God's presence until, of course, they sinned again. Which, if you know your own mind and heart pretty well, that could be real fast. It's like you go to do your sacrifice, somebody gives you a dirty look, and you think <laughs> something bad about them, or you cut somebody off in your camel on the way back from, from the sacrifice. I don't know. It was pretty easy for me to, uh, to pile them up, right? It could do nothing to permanently save people, these sacrifices. But what all of this did, and this is important, this is why you should read even these boring parts of the Old Testament. <laughs> what this did was remind people of the re very real issue of sin and death. And it gave them a vocabulary and a ritual way of thinking about atonement so that in the fullness of time, when God became flesh in the person of Jesus and became known as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world or the bread of life or the Passover lamb or the Son of Man, when these terms were used of Jesus, people automatically thought of atonement sacrifice. And they're like, oh, I'm starting to get it. So when Jesus dies on the cross, the only person who had never sinned as an unblemished sacrifice, the early church quickly saw what was going on. Relatively quickly. Jesus died as the ultimate sacrifice, the last atonement. He did what no person can do. God himself sacrificed himself to rescue us. Forgive me for the crude example, but what was coming to mind when I'm trying to think about illustrating this point is the show Dirty Jobs. Familiar with Dirty Jobs, Mike Rowe, the host, basically shows you how all of the conveniences we take for granted uh, gets to be there. So uh, I was thinking about Jim Morrell. He told me some stories when he used to work in a concrete factory and how I, I poured little bags of concrete on my house uh, last summer. And I was thinking, some poor kid, oh, the, the work that he had to do to, for me to have this concrete bag, it was like $5 at Lowe's, right? I mean, that's a lot of work. So, so I was thinking, like, let's just consider indoor plumbing for a moment, all right? I turn on my faucet, and water comes out that is potable. I can drink it, and then it magically goes in a drain and goes somewhere else uh, that's not on my property. There are scores of people Behind the scenes, men and women who reclaim the wastewater, clean out the sludge, work with chemicals to purify the water, maintain pump systems, write policies so that people don't dump harmful chemicals in our watershed, they maintain the pipes, they test the water for quality control, and more stuff than that that I don't know about. On the other end, there are scores of men and women who maintain our sewers and sewage treatment plants. Just the other day, I saw an article about this new, new problem uh, with uh, all of the high-temperature washers. They cut the grease so they go into the pipes, but in London, these workers had to go down into a massive sewer system and get a 6,000-pound blob of fat and hair. Yeah, I'm just trying to gross you out. Think about that for a minute. Okay, and then back. Okay, my, po <laughs> my, point here, my point here is that there's this great sacrifice behind the scenes to enjoy the simple conveniences of water. And I'm not trying to shame us for coming into worship not thinking a lot about sacrifice and blood and guts and animals. I just want us to appreciate it because we don't often talk about it, do we? But 
I'm so thankful that I can come into worship in this space and sing directly to God and call him Father and not be worried that if I, if I touch the Christ candle or something, I'm going to be zapped or smoked or burn up because I got too close to the holy, right? We're talking about a God who put on flesh and, and dwelt among us. And when he was around unholy people, which is everybody, he just made them holier. He didn't catch what they had. Right? That's, that's the side of history we're living on, and I'm so grateful for it. But let's not forget that there is a major sacrifice so that you and I could come in and enjoy this great relationship that's possible with God. Jesus has made atonement through us, through his sacrifice, and fulfilled the law of ritual animal sacrifice. And through our earnest repentance and our trust in him, Jesus has made atonement for us and God. Hallelujah. That's, that's good news. Okay. Woo. <laughs> yeah. But the sacrificial system is not just one of blood and guts. The second category of sacrifice we learn about in the book of Exodus is, is the offering of gifts. Traditionally, part of tabernacle worship included people bringing gifts to God, like bread or grain offerings. And it's not because he needed to eat, it's because it was something that cost them a little bit, and it showed fellowship with God. God doesn't need these things that we bring him, but it's kind of like going to a dinner party at somebody's house, and uh, you know, you might bring flowers or a bottle of wine or something to show your appreciation. And so when people come to worship, they made their atonement sacrifice so they could get near God, but then they brought an oblation or a thanksgiving or a gift offering to God because they love him. This would later include, of course, the tithe, 10% of one's first fruits of their income. And, and these gifts were from the worshiper to God, but they were used to feed the priests and to do the ministry of the work. In the Exodus story, we see an example of gift giving when God commands Moses to take up this free will offering to build the tabernacle. Listen uh, to Exodus 25. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall raise my contribution. This is the contribution which you are to raise from them. Gold and silver and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet material, fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, porpoise skins, acacia wood, oil for lighting, spices for the anointing oil and for fragrant incense, onyx stones and setting stones for the ephod and for the breastplate. Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them according to all that I am going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. So you have this building of the sacred tent of worship, completely underwritten by the generosity of the people. There's no taxes. There's no mandatory giving. It was a free will offering. And we're not talking about a few dollars here or there. We're talking about precious metals and stones, and fabrics. These items would have been expensive in any ancient marketplace, but just like our economy, supply and demand typically dictated the price of items like this. Now, there's some pretty exotic things on there. Already dyed cloth, porpoise skins. These people are in the desert, right? So even when they were in Egypt, and they had access to the Red Sea and waterways, and yeah, there's freshwater porpoises too in the Nile, you could have these porpoise skins. They'd still be expensive, but now you're out in the desert. How much more expensive would porpoise skins and purple cloth and acacia wood that doesn't even grow out there 
how much more expensive would these things be out there? And so these people brought these gifts forth willingly. Uh, they were sacrificial. They, they, they would never, they, they're basically priceless gifts that they couldn't recoup. There's no store out there to buy more of these things. But then if you just take it a little bit further, where did they get all this expensive stuff? I mean, weren't they just escaped slaves from Egypt? They didn't have incomes. They only worked to eat. How did they get the stuff? See, it all comes back to God. If we remember, when he changed Pharaoh's heart to let them go, he also moved the heart of the Egyptians. And the Egyptians poured out their wealth, gold, onyx, bronze, silver, porpoiseskins, linens, goat hair, just take our stuff and get out of our country. These frogs and all these, these plagues are driving us crazy. Just go. So it's the, the Egyptians who have gifted them all this stuff, and it's God who has done it. And so these gifts of generosity and sacrifice are really just a giving back a portion to God of what he had already given them. Isn't that amazing? That even the sacrifices God calls for are really things that he gives us in the first place. So in a very true sense, worship involves sacrifice, and at the same time, the sacrifice we offer is just something that God has already given us. And so giving can be an act of devotion. We give gifts to those people we love, and it can be an act of thanksgiving. It was Samara's fifth birthday on the 21st of September. Uh, she, we had a family birthday party, all the uncles and aunts and grandparents were there and she got this cool little digital camera and you know so she's playing with this thing all the time uh, it was a Saturday and then the next Sunday she's playing and playing and, and Corey asked her to put her toys down for a little bit and to write thank you cards okay thank you cards for these gifts that she had given had, had received and and for her like it took some coercing right like like it's a sacrifice to not play with the stuff but to tell someone thank you for it and and I hope that 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 habit begins to stick as we train our kids in this direction, right? Um, which brings me to another aspect of the power of giving sacrificially. Giving is always a formative experience. It reminds us that we are first recipients of a gracious father, and then we learn to trust in him and not our stuff when we give it away on a regular basis. It, that's one of the reasons of giving part of our finances in Christian worship. We may believe in our heads that God is the one who has given us all these things. He's given me a job, or he's given me income, or he's given me whatever the things that we have. We may have that mindset even as, as people who are gathered for worship. But in reality, we often tie up our resources on things and activities that largely serve our own personal desires and comforts. See, money is power and it's security in our culture. And by giving it back to God, we practice the discipline of trusting that he will provide, not our things. So, so far, we have briefly explored the sacrifices of atonement and giving of gift offerings. These two categories of sacrifice and worship are mainly between the worshiper and God. But there's a third category that has to do with the community. And, and one of the examples is the shalamim offering, which has the same root as the word shalom, 
which is peace, as you know. Uh, this peace offering has to do with peace with God, but also peace within the human community. With the atonement sacrifice, the whole animal was given up to God as a burnt offering, like every piece of the animal. But with the shelamim offering, or the fellowship offering, most of the animal was cooked for human consumption. We're talking about a barbecue. So God got the gross parts, like the intestines, and I'm not going to say any more organs because I just realized some of you are grossed out, but you know, the stuff you wouldn't want to eat, and all that goes up smoky to God, and then the people got to eat the tri-tips and the New York steaks and the filet mignon and all the other good chops and ribs and stuff like that. Sorry, vegetarians. Rice grossed out right now. You wouldn't fare well, my friend. Um, <coughs> but anyway, so they get, they get to eat this amazing meal together. That's what the sacrifice is about, is, is human reconciliation and, and, and fellowship together. You can't say that you love God and hate your neighbor at the same time. And that quote might come from the New Testament and the epistles of John, but it's a, it's a timeless concept established far before the New Testament in the Hebrew Scriptures, in God's way of thinking. God doesn't want our special services and sacrifices if we're not in right relationship with people. If you come to offer an atonement sacrifice, but you're not repenting of your sin, it, you may as well stay at home. It, atonement was never viewed as a magical exchange. I go through the motions and God forgives me. It always had to do with the heart of the person sacrificing The peace offering is this way to bring the community together. The poor, the rich, the powerful, those of low social class, all of God's children on a level playing field eating a community meal together. I, and it's no accident that part of our worship rhythm is to eat together each week. Um, because of tithes and offerings, that food that we eat is subsidized by the church. And so everybody can get around one of those plastic round tables and it doesn't matter who you sit by, it doesn't matter your income or education or socioeconomic background or class, we're all going to eat the same food together, and there's something holy about that. It's, in a way, a fellowship offering uh, right in our own Christian worship. What I hope you've seen today is that even before Jesus and the cross, the sacrificial system of worship in ancient Israel was a gracious gift from God. Please don't think that God was somehow meaner in the Old Testament and then did everything good in the New Testament. Th this is a, a, a way a, of extreme grace he's giving us in tabernacle worship. God provided a way for his people to be near him, to express their thanksgiving, to reconcile relationships with one another. And I hope we, we begin to appreciate just how amazing it is that through his death and resurrection, Jesus has fulfilled this atonement sacrifice. If anything, uh, besides like the cleansing of my sin and salvation and all of those great things, I'm just glad uh, pastors don't have to be like butchers anymore and like spread blood all over stuff. I'm not sure I would have gone into this job, right? Because of this amazing grace, the Apostle Paul could write Romans 12, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters by the mercies of God or in light of the mercies of God to present your bodies, your very lives, as a living and holy sacrifice. That's what it means now, on this side of the cross, to worship sacrificially. Our lives have been made new, we've been redeemed through Christ, so that we are free to pour ourselves into others. We don't come to worship with animals to sacrifice, thanks be to God, but we do come to sacrifice 
to pour out our praises, to lay our lives down for one another, and to practice generous giving from that which God has already given us. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for this reminder from the book of Exodus and parts of Leviticus about how costly it is to be in right relationship with you. Thank you for the reminder of your holiness and our fallenness. And thank you that you don't keep us in that spot. But you gave yourself, you sacrificed yourself for us. I, I pray uh, by the power of your spirit that you would help us to, to believe that to receive that not only cognitively, but deep in our emotional center, deep in our hearts. May it make a difference for how we, how we live. I pray for any brothers or sisters here who have yet to, to know you as the living God, to know you as Savior, to know you as the atoning one and the risen and reigning one. And I pray you would release faith. I pray for those brothers and sisters who have been uh, walking after you a long time and have looked up recently and realized, I think I've walked away from you. Would you speak through this word, Lord, and help us to appreciate your deep and abiding love for us. And Lord, for those brothers and sisters who are here to worship and maybe we've just simply forgotten what it costs, what it what an amazing thing it is that we can actually approach you as, uh, as your children and expect that you love us, Lord. Help us to appreciate what it costs to get to this place. We love you.